David Gatton, D20 cricket. Yeah. It's, it's like me going to the opera. We're very pleased to be joined by someone who scaled the heights both on the pitch and off the pitch after retired in the world of broadcasting. Uh, it's a very, very big 98 Not Out. Welcome to Mr. David Gower. <laughs> David, how are you, sir? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm fine. Um, quieter times now. Um, yes, referring back to all those years ago is one thing. Uh, looking at present is another. <laughs> well, I'll start off. We had um, your good mate, David Bumble Lloyd, on the show um, a few weeks ago talking about Shane Warne and he gave a very touching tribute um, and in the middle of the conversation your name came up because he was talking about great places to go touring and he mentioned the West Indies and he also said that he loved going to Pakistan and I pointed out to him that um, you had been out there commentating on the PSL and he nearly fell off his chair and, and the quote that he gave us was David Gower commentating on T20 is like me going to the opera. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I can. I was equally surprised, to be honest. Um, when it first came up, I had about, I think, I, had, I was given two days' notice about a year ago to go to um, a leg of the PSL. I managed to extend that to three to put my affairs in order. Uh, and I enjoyed it. It's, I mean, the, the interesting thing was that when I was at Sky, they took the view that my profile or whatever it was, or contract or both. Um, didn't really suit T20. Bumble, of course, is brilliant at it. Um, and sort of fully bought into the whole ethos of the entertainment value of T20 in all its incarnations. And uh, as I say, in the meantime, I was happily mowing the lawn while T20 was on. Did the odd one abroad when you know, inevitably there'd be say an international T20, say for instance in Australia, where we were already there, so they had no choice but to use me. Um, and what I found is that actually the, you know, the excitement of PSL is brilliant to watch. I mean, there are things that are incongruous, of course. Um, you know, this, obviously the, the one thing that would bemuse, confuse, and possibly annoy the purists is that in the modern game, if you look at PSL, look at IPL, look at any commercial channel, but especially those Asian channels, uh, when T20 cricket is on, you know, it is bombarded by advertising. So I mean, it's quite interesting. It's quite fun. Um, you know, the sort of the descriptive powers of just saying, you know, you just saying that's a lovely cover drive. No, 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 no. That's not just a lovely cover drive. That's a brighto, you know, <laughs> color drive. You know, whatever it might be. Um, so the you know, so the, the so the rhythm is a bit different. But there is nothing to stop me enjoying it. That is for sure. And I've now done what was it? Uh, Karachi last year, Abu Dhabi last year, Karachi in Lahore this year um, with PSL. It's been fun and I hope to go back again. And of course, um, we saw you back in familiar territory down under over the winter. Mm -hmm. um, very good to see you back in that kind of role. And it appeared to me from what I saw that you had a bit more free reign in terms of um, style of coverage and interviewing, etc. Would that be a fair assessment? Uh, I think it is. I mean, a lot of people have said that, um, so it's probably true. Um, it wasn't conscious. You know, it's one of those things. It wasn't necessarily conscious, but the. Um, I mean, I've I've thought about it, having read, having sort of read and seen the comments. I've thought about it since, and realised that when I was at Sky, for instance, with the dual roles presenting and commentating, you know, a lot of the focus was on uh, on the presenting side as much as the commentary. When you're doing 
pure commentary and a bit of punditry, um, you know, talking to studios at the end of the day and the rest of it, um, there is a sort of a slightly different feel to it, which has come through. I mean, I love doing it. It was, it was lovely to be back in you know, a commentary box again. Uh, the circumstances were slightly weird, um, you know, given that a lot of it to do was to do with Michael Vaughan's, uh, as it were, temporary exile from that same commentary box, uh, that same setup for BT Sport. But I mean, it, I have to say, when I, I got down there, the first person I saw was Michael in his role for Fox Sports, and we kind of waved at each other. And then we had a chance to have a bit of sort of 20, 25 minutes, bit of a chat later on in Sydney, which was fascinating. Um, but that's a completely different topic, which we're not going to go into now, I can promise you for sure. Um, but yeah, so on the back of Michael's travails, I was sort of shoehorned in, which was great. And working with the likes of, let's see who we had there, Mark Taylor, uh, Jeff Lawson, uh, Glenn McGrath, Merv Hughes, Ian Chappell, you know, all these people who were sort of dragged in to do the odd half hour or the odd day or the odd game. Um, and they're all lovely people in their own very different ways. Um, and it's interesting when you're working with them down under, because the, at least what I thought I was able to do and we were able to do at BG Sport was bring a, another angle. Uh, because if you're listening, dare I say, if you're listening to, say, Fox Sports, um, fairly jingoistic, we put it mildly, uh, version of commentary, it's a bit different. Uh, what I found was they were all very keen to engage, all very keen to be even-handed. Uh, and one of the things that actually you find over the years is that in a what I'd call a proper commentary team, that ability to be even-handed to both teams, I think, is vital. And when I was at Sky, uh, again, in the mediator's role, that was the thing I was always keen to, to maintain. If we're having a discussion about a game, well, there are two sides playing the game. Sky might be a, a UK channel and, you know, in a sense, supporting England. Uh, let's face it, they support England cricket to the tune of something like 200 million pounds a year now. Uh, at the same time, you need to be even-handed when you're discussing a game of cricket because the people watching you are representatives of both teams. So I've, I've always tried to have that sort of ethos at the front of my mind when, when commentating. But yes, the, um, so the, the, the ability to go a little bit off-piste, the ability to relax, the ability to have a bit of fun, um, all those things were allowed at Sky. But I think, I, you know, I think on reflection, it was just, I just had a sort of bit of, as it were, devil-may-care freedom that came from the fact that two years ago, I thought I might never do it again. Here I was back in a commentary box and just loving every moment. So that's, that's how it works. It's not often that Glenn McGrath is, uh, is noted as being even-handed when it comes well, no. to Ash's commentary. I, mean, I know Glenn's great because, I mean, it, you have that ritual with Glenn that you know, prior to each and every Ashes series, both during his playing days, probably, and certainly since he's retired, you know, prediction of the result, 5-0. You know, it's you know, equally so, both of them, you know, my great mate, you know, the Lord. Um, you know, if you ask him, he's brought into that same very simplified um, version of prediction, which is just go for the extreme. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, doesn't matter whether you've thought about it or not, it's just a knee-jerk reaction, which is great for headlines. I mean, but Glenn, when you start to talk to him um, more reasonably, you know, well, not, yes, as yet, more reasonably, you know, when you start to ask his opinions on you know, a day's test cricket and who's played well, who's played not so well, you know, he's very good. Um, so, yeah, there is, there is so, you know, the cartoon character 5-0 and there is the real, real Glenn McGrath. Which is often the same and often right. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, he has been right <laughs> a couple of times in relatively recent history, um, but through no fault of his own. <laughs> The Ashes um, always seems to define both England teams and 
to a certain extent, England captains. And this Ashes series seemed to mark the kind of absolute high point of ratcheting up of, of pressure on the whole England set, not just Joe Root, but all the way up the, the chain of command. Um, we'll talk about the fallout and the subsequent uh, events in, in just a second. But watching it, I was, I was really reminded of the 1989 Ashes series, David, and I can remember vividly reading your diaries in the Times newspaper um, just afterwards, just explaining or giving an insight into what it was actually like. And it, it made me wonder about being an England captain. If you are, if you are, if you get to the level of playing Test cricket, I would assume that the captain's role is is the ultimate accolade. Mm -hmm. But is it? Well, I'm sure it is a double-edged sword. So, could you just give us an idea of What's great and what's awful about being England's test captain? Well, you, you can simplify it incredibly easily. If things are going well, it's great. If things are not going well, it's horrible. Yeah. There you are. You know, it's, it's, it's a very natural sort of human thing that you, know, you take... Um, you're, you're always aware that there is a, you know, a middle ground whereby if you get overexcited with your successes, then all you're doing is waiting for it to go horribly wrong and someone to say, oh, there you are, I see, that's the other side. Uh, what's not very easy, of course, is to deal with the, the abject failures. I mean, I'm delighted you've mentioned 1989, um, uh, or maybe not, to be honest, um, because it was a pretty grim time. Um, and it, it, again, to encapsulate that, I remember taking it on. I mean, okay, I took the job on because I was offered it, and... It's one of those jobs it's impossible to turn down. I mean, I can't off the top of my head think of anyone necessarily who has been rung up by a head of selectors, chairman of selectors, offered the job and said, no, yeah, you must be joking. Why would I want to do that? You know, everyone goes, yeah, this is the, you know, this is the height. This is the apogee. This is, you know, this is the pinnacle. This is where you want to be. And it's the challenge you want to take on. So having experienced in my relatively brief captaincy career of 32 games, every possible combination. 89 was a nightmare because I took it on not knowing at the time I was second choice, maybe even third choice for that matter. Um, didn't matter. I was happy to do it, wanted to do it, and had um, ambitions and expectations of repeating 85, where we'd beaten Alan Border's team 3-1. And that was, you know, that was the, um, that because it's the Ashes, standing at the over the little Ashes trophy in your hand is brilliant, is absolutely brilliant. Um, it kind of matched, I think, the achievement of winning in India as well, which was a much different sort of series, much tougher sort of tour um, for all sorts of very different reasons, politics and assassinations being right up there at the top of the list. But winning the Ashes is very special. Equally, losing the Ashes is dreadful. And the thing about the 89 series is that every possible combination of things that could go wrong. I mean, when you have that throwaway line, what could possibly go wrong? Well, it all went wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, losing the first game when we should have at least drawn it. Um, finding ourselves under pressure at Lords again, um, you know, injuries, selection. I mean, I, the one thing I would take some responsibility for was the fact that our selection policy that year was rubbish um, and that people came in, people went out. I think it was something like 29 players used in the six matches. Uh, part of that, of course, was the fact that underlying this all was the Rebel Tour that was being put together um, side by side with the Ashes, which... As ever, then the last person to find out is the current England captain, uh, for obvious reasons. You can't alert him to the fact there's a rebel tour. But what I found actually, of all the things I found sort of bemusing 
uh, which is again an understatement, was the fact that Dexter and Stuart, Ted as chairman select, as chairman of the committee, Mickey Stewart as the team manager, both had some knowledge of this rebel tour before I did. And for some reason, they chose not to share it with me. So it's you're operating in the dark. Uh, and by that stage, by the time it became public knowledge, which was Old Trafford, fourth test match, which we'd lost again and conceded the Ashes still with two games to go, which is not a nice feeling. Um, you know, there was so much going on. I mean, it was, it was the most depressing time. Um, I mean, it's certainly confusing, certainly. I mean, your emotions range from confusion to anger to everything in between. Um, you take solace from friends. You, I mean, that's, that's where you need a good sort of firm grounding elsewhere, because if you're completely wound up in what you're doing as captain, I mean, you could actually literally implode or explode, take your pick, you know, it depends, doesn't matter where you go in or out, you know, it's not a very pleasant feeling. So at that stage, for instance, at Old Trafford, I remember, apart from the Rebel Tour <clears throat> being announced, and therefore, I think it was something like six or seven players automatically not available for the last two games. Um, which, of course, is a big chunk. But by then, of course, you've lost the ashes. So in a sense, what does it matter? But it was you know, one thing after another. I remember at Old Trafford also, David Norrie, News of the World at the time, um, who was someone I understood and he understood me. And um, you know, we had a pretty good relationship as player stroke captain stroke journalist. Rang me up, I think, on the, I forget which night, probably the Saturday night. Um, and he said, will you be considering your position? And we had a discussion, a semantic discussion as to whether I'd be considering my position or reconsidering my position, um, which was sort of a slight distraction from the seriousness of the situation. And I obviously said, well, no, I'm not um, thinking about my position at the moment. Let's see what happened. Uh, even then, I mean, I could have resigned. I was persuaded by Dexter and Stewart to carry on because with those seven, six or seven men going to the rebel tour, I mean, there was no one left. <laughs> so, I mean, it might have been a sinking ship, but um, therefore the captain had to go down with it. And I mean, there is not enough time even here, not enough time in a thousand word essay or sort of a 10,000 word essay or even a full book to really sort of go into the, the whole story of that 1989 series. Just suffice to say at the end of it, I was rather bruised and battered. Yeah, um, uh, that's never left me. That that, that uh, your diaries from that um, mm. the, from that series. Um, I'm just curious as, as how do you cope? Because the pressure, as you say, from all there were things coming at you from all sides. I mean, did you just sort of ever feel at one point? Do you know what? Well, I'm off or whatever. Well, do you know? But strangely, not because there is still something about England captain being England captain that you quite like to hang on to it um, and. Here's the other thing, even when you're beaten badly, um, and even for instance, as an individual, as a batsman, let alone as a captain, if you've had, say, a poor series, there is a method of dealing with that. So you go something like this, you draw a line at the end of it and you start again. So I mean, for instance, had, uh, you know, had um, even early in my career, when I was left out for the first time, early eighties against the West Indies, um, you either say, well, that's it. You, you sort of give in, which of course is not very sporting or not, not, a, very, not a very good sign if you're a sportsman because that's you know, one of the things you don't do is give in. You learn how to fight back and get better and get back in again. So when I was first left out, I was back in again within months and making runs in the West Indies. So 
you realize that you can make comebacks. Therefore, you draw a line after each and every series, good or bad. Um, so you start every series afresh. And then if you start on the right notes and you have a good series, that's fine. You know, and your career carries on. If people had left me out, for instance, completely every time I had a bad series or you know, a few bad games, well, then you wouldn't play 100 and whatever it was, 17 test matches. You'd play about 20. <laughs> well, you play 50, you know, you'd be, uh, you know, you'd miss out on half your career. So the ability to bounce back uh, both individually and as a team, of course, is, is a very, very important trick to master. Now, in 89, I mean, even, even at the end of 89, when, you know, the dust had settled and Alan Border had flown back to Australia with, you know, the ashes in hand and, you know, another, you know, Plain load of plain load of very very happy Australians returning to the you know the the home of the ashes now. Even that dust had settled. You know I had to meet with Dexter and Stewart to discuss the future, uh, and they'd made their mind up quite rightly that they, you know quotes we need to go in a different direction. Um, so I offered them a map. Um, but the and in fact that, that, that's one of the keys when you say how do you cope. Little story for you at Trent Bridge in that series um, day one. Uh, Taylor and Marsh were 300 for none. Yeah, I, taken. I, don't know, I can't remember you know, the exact moment. And with about half an hour to go on that first day, it's obviously not going particularly according to plan. Um, I signalled to Greg Thomas, who was 12th man, to come down on the field. Waved him down and he sort of trotted out, met me halfway between the, the pitch and the pavilion at Trent Bridge there. He said, what can I do for you? I said, can you just, can you just do me a favour? Can you go to the press box and ask them what the we do now? And he went, Are you serious? I said, uh, no, 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 no. I'm just buying a little. This is just a moment, just to buy a bit of time, just to sort of um, you know, take five, as it were. And one of the things, I don't know whether it's a sort of natural thing, whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing, one of the things I always tried to do is that even, even when the pressure was at its worst, you have to try and cling on to a sense of humor, or at least a, maybe a sense of the bizarre or maybe the unordinary. I mean, and the other thing, here's the, here's the next story. Following morning, same game, day two. We get whichever one we got out first, it didn't really matter, but we'd, get, we'd taken a wicket in the morning. And at Trent Bridge in those days, the dining room was a sort of very crammed affair. So we had tables, English and Australian players and officials all in this dining room, very close together. So as I came in, from the field at the end of the first session of the day on day two at Trent Bridge. I loudly called to the ladies, the Trent Bridge dinner ladies, ladies, we need some champagne. We've taken a <laughs> wicket. We need to celebrate. And I mean, I remember sort of looking at the, the Australian tables where they were sort of, what? What is this man on about? You know, um, and I remember talking to Mark Taylor about it um, at a function, uh, I think last time the Ashes were in this country. We did a function up in Leeds actually. And, he said, I've always remembered you coming in that day and saying, we need champagne. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it now becomes sort of, yeah, yeah, at the time, I think they were sort of slightly offended, you know, because in the heat of the heat of the competition, it was, well, how dare you? You know, we're, we're, you know, we're treading all over you and you come in asking for champagne. You know. But he now finds it a very amusing story. So that was the sort of thing I would do to try and relieve the internal pressure and at times the external pressure. So I mean, you've, got, you've always got to try and put on a, you know, a brave face as captain anyway. I mean, if, if you're the one going, I'm going to shoot myself, well, the other 10 are hardly going to be enthused or inspired, are they? So you, somehow, somehow 
you have to sort of find strengths from somewhere, keep that brave face going, uh, keep coming up with ideas, um, you know, still pretend you're leading the ship. Zav echoes of 81. Oh, sorry, go on, go on, wait, go on. No doubt we'll touch on some of um, Ian Botham's travails as captain shortly, but it kind of helped that there was so much chopping and changing in the captaincy throughout the 80s. There was, there was Ian, and I'll, I'll miss out a few, I'm sure, Ian, Keith Fletcher, Bob Willis, yourself, Graham Gooch, I think I'm right in saying, yeah. John Embry and Alan Lamb both had a stint at captain in as well. I think Lamy, um, Lamy was a stand-in. Um, right. We had, I mean, for instance, 88 was the worst, where you had West Indies as the visitors, so you, know, you kind of need a bit of unity to fight off the invaders. Um, <laughs> we had Gatting, we had Mike to start with. Cool. Um, we had the incident at Rothley Court, where he was deemed um, to be out of order as an England captain, setting the wrong example, so he was fired off. Um, we had Chris Cowdery, my great mate. Chris comes in, who was having a fantastic season, had a couple, great couple of years as Kent captain. So he was brought into Leeds to captain up there, which was a thankless task for him. Embers, John Embridge had a game. Um, Graham Gooch took over at the end. Derek Pringle substituted on the field when Graham left the field. Um, you know, Lamy had done it in Australia. He'd been captain when Gucci was injured um, later on, actually, in 1991. So you're right, there was a, I mean, 88 was the worst because it was just the sort of, you know, the, the, you know, talk about the revolving door for players in 89. Well, 88, the revolving door was spitting captains out left, right and centre. Uh, and yes, that's destabilising. You know, the, you know, the best eras are when, you know, a captain has a good run at it. If you have a good run at it by some sort of implication, although I suppose recent events maybe contradict this. You're probably winning a few games as much as you're losing any. You know, you're winning series, so you keep the job. Um, and normally speaking, I mean, it's and you know, people say it's a dangerous job because you, it always ends in failure. Well, actually, that's not. You know, think about it; it's quite logical. You know, not many captains get the chance to go to an end of a career and say, "Do you know what? I think I've had enough. I think I'll you know, go and sell a yacht around the around the Caribbean now." Um, you know, most of the time, it is on the back of. Yeah, a few poor results or a lot of poor results and a tap on the shoulder and we need to move on. And as I say, that's completely logical in many, many ways. In the 80s, um, you just you mentioned the Caribbean. My, my dad, uh, God rest his soul, was Guyanese um, and a huge, a huge um, cricket expert, as is everyone from the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that cricket rum and dominoes, um, that's another, another subject altogether. Um, but the 80s was, was, a, was a terrible time because not only do you have the old enemy of, of the Australians, but you had that rampaging West Indian side. So, you know, if you were reeling from Ashes travails, then quite often the, the West Indians would turn up just to kind of rub salt into the wounds. Probably the other way around. I think if you, I mean, the West Indies were as strong as any team ever. Um, you know, I would tip my hat to Clive Lloyd and then Richards and that's, you know, not just a quartet of fast bowlers, but you could probably say there's an entire 11 of potential world-class fast bowlers available through the 80s. Uh, and some of the greatest batsmen too, you know, Greenwich Haynes, Richards, you know, Richardson, Dujon, you know, <laughs> Gomes, you just keep <laughs> ripping off names left, right and centre. So it was possibly, you can argue this one as long as you like, possibly the finest test team ever. 
Um, and you kind of, I mean, actually, it's interesting, both of them, Beefy always said, well, wait, my results were okay against West Ham. I only lost for 1-0 or you know, maybe 2-0. <laughs> You know, I never lost 5-0. Um, and in fact, we should have... <laughs> there was a catch I dropped at Trent Bridge in 80, whatever it was, 81, where we might have won that game, which would have been brilliant. Um, difficult, you know, very difficult challenge. Call. I ran miles to try and catch. Anyway, forget that. And Beef is always, always reminding me about that. <laughs> um, but the truth is that through the 80s, yeah, West Indies were the finest side in the world. Um, even the best ball in the world, you didn't really expect to beat them. And all you tried to do in some respects was minimize the damage and sometimes very little effect. So it was the other way around in the sense that you kind of assumed you'd lose the West Indies um, because of their just immense strength. Therefore, the Ashes became even more important because even though Australia and England weren't the two you know, finest sides in the world, because of the history of the Ashes, um, it was always, always, always going to be a way of, as it were, um, restoring a reputation as a captain. So if you could win the Ashes, so 85 for me was brilliant because, you know, 84, we'd lost the West Indies, my first as pointed series. Um, and that was the first 5-0. 84-5, been to India, somehow managed to come out of that on top, which was, a, as I say, was a very proud achievement, um, an extraordinary tour. So then the 85 Ashes become, well, okay, now this is the Ashes, this is AB, my great sort of mate and adversary, Alan Border. Um, and this, you know, this becomes you know, a showpiece in its own right. And you forget everything else. So it just becomes a focus entirely on the Ashes. So to be there at the Oval holding the Ashes aloft at the end of it all, which is what, three, four months work in those days, was a very special moment. Um, and equally so going back to the 89 series four years later, well, you know, equally depressing or as depressing as uplifting as it had been pro uh, previously. So, but you have that thing where the ashes is a standalone magic moment, good or bad. You know, it is a standalone definitive moment for captains because of the history. And so, if you know, it, it doesn't matter, I say, you kind of forget. I mean, nowadays, if you look at the world test rankings as it was, say, well, a year ago when we had that final between New Zealand and India. You know, the first ever World Test Championship final to define who is officially the number one side. Well, OK, you know, that was special for both teams. Um, and it was actually, it was an interesting contest, a fascinating contest, really special for both teams. But, you know, we as an England team, Australia as an Australia team, would always look at the Ashes as uh, something separate and very special. OK, let's bring it bang up to date now so um we've had the red bull reset we're undergoing red bull reset version 2.0 at the moment um there seems to be well there's clearly a big divergence in between england's white ball setup structure and fortunes and the test structure uh it's all come down like a house of cards over the winter we've got um, a new captain, we've got a new managing director. Um, what more needs to be done to preserve Test cricket and uh, and the future of it in this country? <laughs> well, the... <laughs> yeah, just a, a minor question. <laughs> um, just a gentle throwaway, you know, probably another glass of, you know... <laughs> um, maybe a twiglet or two, you know, it's... <laughs> I think the, I mean, there's, 
one of the great things about um, English cricket is that we still have a big following for Test cricket. And in a sense, it's the good news and the bad news all in one go. I mean, I was, it was highlighted last year. Someone rang me up or somebody messaged me to say, just before the first Test match against India, we seem to have had wall-to-wall marketing about this thing called the 100, but no one seems to mention the Test match yet. And you've got you know, a marquee series against one of the top two sides in the world, India, brilliant side. Um, so why not, you know, why not promote it? And Tom Harrison, when I asked him about it, said, well, but it was already sold out. Why did we need, you know, why did we need to market it? They, in effect, those are his words. Now that's the dangerous slippery slope, isn't it? Because it's all very well when you have got good support for Test cricket in the country and grounds that hold, say, between, what is it, 18 and best part of 30,000, um, which you can fill, I mean, Lords, 28, 29, 30,000, whatever it is now, you can fill uh, reasonably well for a marquee series, you know, incredibly well. I mean, they you know, four days of sold out tickets. Um, but if you forget the importance of it and just sort of let it look after itself, then one day someone will be tapping on the shoulder again and saying, oh, by the way, we're only half full for this test match against Australia. You go, oh, how did that happen? Oh, we forgot to mention it. You know, so actually it's this Red Bull reset. It's, a, you know, it's, it, it's not as though it took people by surprise. It's just, and, and even last, you know, even in Australia, um, talking to Tom down there, um, there was a sort of feeling, well, hang on a second, what's the panic? And suddenly it became a panic. Now, I mean, the white ball reset brought us a World Cup for the first time. And it was a fantastic day, a fantastic tournament. Brilliant moment for Owen Morgan and his white ball team. And Owen Morgan is a very, very impressive man uh, as, a, as a captain. And I think he deserves every accolade coming for the way he shaped that side, not single-handedly, but he'd driven that side in his own very impressive way um, from previous World Cup defeats to World Cup winners. So, I mean, he takes an awful lot of credit for that. Um, but the resources given to the white ball team were noticeably better. You know, the emphasis was towards all that. And so, you know, where do you strike the balance? I mean, how, especially when you've got certain players, I mean, Ben Stokes, obviously one of the great examples, who are likely to feature on every team sheet, whether it's five day, 50 over or 20 over. Um, so you've got to balance out who, you know, with all these workloads and everything's been going on the last couple of years, you know, the, the balance, striking the balance is incredibly difficult. And I, and I grant that is a something which has been, would have been beyond Solomon probably to sort out as well, um, had Test cricket been an issue, you know, 2000 years ago. Now, where you go from here, I mean, a lot of people are quite rightly talking about the scheduling of the English summer, which does need rescheduling, but there are already too many things that need to be packed into it. So what has to give? Um, and I suppose you know, they're going to give the hundred a chance, aren't they? You know, they can't just having sort of spent all this, all these millions on it to get it going. Um, and there are certain benefits to it for sure. Um, but you know, the blast was doing okay. Um, the fifty-over competition. You know, no sooner have you won a World Cup when the 50-over competition, domestic competition, is being played by second-team players with one experienced player in the side and shoveled off at the background to the 100. Um, and you think, well, okay, that's interesting. And test matches, you know, you're playing, again, going back to the India series last summer, you're looking at potential changes to a team because there are elements not performing. And where do you look for someone in form? Nowhere. 
because there's no four-day cricket going on. So, I mean, at least there's, an, you know, there's a start and attempt to get four-day cricket back into the middle of the summer again, which I think is only right. Um, and if you, want to, yeah, if you want to have a decent test team, then all the things that have been talked and written about in the last three or four months um, are relevant. You know, pitches, balls, um, attitudes, um, you know, there are, you know, uh, talent coming through and you know, how you manage talent, how you, how you coach talent, you know, what, what's needed because, uh, you know, and the start of this scene has been interesting again because we've had a, you know, very dry April. So actually they got away with it, you know, playing, you know, playing county cricket at the end of winter. Um, and a lot of runs have been scored. So there are, you know, it's, it's fascinating. There are about sort of seven or eight opening batsmen, all with double hundreds probably, or big hundreds, who every time someone like that gets a big, oh, is so-and-so in line to, you know, make an England debut? Well, they can't all play. And one of the great, one of the great things that is very hard to fathom and quantify is this. You get people coming in to a test team who've, Sean, I mean, they, by definition, they've done something good in county cricket. And it's a step up, which not really since Marcus Triscothic, because someone stepped up, and Alistair Cook, because someone stepped up from county cricket and said, yes, test cricket is absolutely my game, and I'm going to make thousands of runs. Um, you know, it's become a really tough thing. And that just that little incremental step from county cricket to test match cricket where by definition, the bowling gets better, um, to use a very simple word. Um, you know, the pressure is on because you get fewer, you know, even in first-class cricket, I mean, there are bad balls now and again. Um, you know, county cricket is, I'm not trying to run down county cricket, but test cricket by definition, it, it does get harder. Um, and so you have to, you know, take a game from your county game into the test match. And I was talking to, talking to Gucci, talking to Graham the other day, um, when he was captain and also batting coach, people would come to him and say, well, how do I, how do I play? I'm not going to quote names necessarily, but you know, how do I play? You know, do, I, do I change? Do I change my game? You know, do I, what, do I, what do I have to do differently to succeed in test cricket? And the simple answer is probably concentrate even harder. Um, but of course, I was, I was one who somehow survived quite some time with the same sort of game. Um, it had good days and bad. It had good years and bad years. Um, it came with a certain amount of risk, um, which was well documented. Um, but somehow I was able to play my game at the highest level. Uh, and when it worked, it was lovely. Now that, but if people start coming into the game thinking, into test matches thinking, you know, I've got to play a different game. Well, that's mighty tricky because if you learn to play the game, you know, at school, maybe university, if you're lucky, um, county seconds, county firsts, and you're stepping up to an international side, and you're thinking, oh, I've got to play a different game here. It's not a great time to be you know, starting afresh. You, you've got to have, somehow have that um, chutzpah, confidence, bravery to carry on playing your way, um, and just try that bit harder. Just appreciate that you, know, you might have to wait a bit longer to play your favourite shot. Um, and that, again, if you try and bring it down to simple simplistic terms like that that is in many ways the difference just noticed because i've got a cheapo zoom account we've got under two minutes left on this recording um just before you go david um mm. just a quick word about uh, lord taverners which uh, you and i are both involved with you are still the president uh, looking forward to um a much more productive and fruitful 2022 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's a great role to have, and it's a great charity to be part of. I mean, last couple of years we've had uh, the cricket matches going on as best they can, but without the the periphery, without the lunches, without the auctions that help raise the funds. So we've kept people involved, and we've kept the the programs running. Super ones, wickets, all these programs have been running in the background uh, with all that great support that Tabners gets. So this year we should be able to enjoy the cricket in the same way, same sort of Tabner's way, which is a lot of fun and frolic, um, good, bad, indifference, some dodgy umpiring decisions from current and former presidents. Um, so all those things will carry on. And there's some great venues, of course, and lots of people very keen to support what Tabner's do. But the whole thing was highlighted to me. Um, one of the function was actually left over from a couple of years ago up in Norwich with the Norfolk branch of the Tabner's. And I was cunningly placed between two headmistresses um, of two extraordinary schools where they deal with both some severely disadvantaged and disabled children, mentally handicapped children. And just, you know, you know, the, the, two, the two women were so very impressive. And what they do is just extraordinary. Um, but they were both very, very keen to say thank you to Lord's Taverns. Um, not just the minibuses. The minibuses is what Tad has been giving away for donkeys here, but they are important. But all the other bits and pieces that come from that involvement with Tadmers and other charities. So you are able to help the most disadvantaged children um, in great ways. Um, and it was very uplifting actually listening to them um, because they both spoke very eloquently about what they have to do, the challenges they face as headmistresses with these children. They're both passionate. Um, and in fact, you know, for me to stand up at that same dinner and sort of try and, as it were, entertain solely on cricket almost seemed wrong. I mean, it was fun. And they, you know, the, the spirit of the taverns, again, is to, is to do the good things with a bit of fun in the background, or in many ways in the foreground. So we had a very, very good function. Um, but the, you know, the outstanding moments of that function were these two great ladies speaking about their children uh, and the absolute passion with which they do their job. So... Every time you go to a function like that, you are reminded as to you know, what the whole purpose of it is. But the, the management's task at the moment, the admin um, at Laws Tavern, I mean, they're looking at these programs, they want to increase the programs, get these programs spread out. I mean, things like the say, wickets, super ones, table cricket. I mean, again, going back to these lovely ladies, Rebecca and Jane at uh, Norwich, <laughs> they have a team, one of those schools has a team which is through to the regional finals of the table cricket competition for Lord's Tavern. And these children are the most disadvantaged, disabled children um, you could imagine. So that in itself is just, I mean, it's mind boggling. It's, it's mind blowing. It's just so impressive. Um, so yes, in essence, you know, just to have a, um, a figurehead role at that sort of charity with the Lord's Tavern is just lovely. Um, because it's been so quiet, my term has been extended um so i'm yeah just happy to be around well it's true and it is um it is incredibly humbling i mean the things that i've been to like the wickets and and, and uh, um the projects like that the table cricket um just just incredible to see these kids and the and the expressions of joy on their faces as well at being uh included into something so positive mm. is, is just well worth it and uh yeah, as I say, it's, it's truly humbling. Uh, David, we've taken up way too much of your time, which was only supposed to be a five-minute chat this morning, um, but an absolute joy uh, and an honour to talk to you. You're one of my boyhood heroes. Um, I still remember that innings at Edgbaston against India. Um, 78, was oh. it? 
Yeah. Uh, 79. Oh, 79. Sorry. Double 100 against India. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In 79. Yeah. 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 Formative so, moment. <laughs> and without a helmet, I seem to remember. Uh, not needed. <laughs> not needed. I mean, the. I mean, the, I suppose you had. I mean, to be honest, I mean, it was pretty flat pitch, nice flat pitch. Um, and you had the likes of Kapil Dev. But most of the bowling that India favoured in that era was still Bedi, Chandrasekhar, Venkat. He was still the, the great spinners who were at times unplayable at home. Uh, luckily for me, were a little bit more playable on a sort of slow, not well, well, sorry, easy-paced, non-turning Edgbaston pitch in 1979. So, um, still got to make the runs, though. Still got to get them. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, David Gower, many, many thanks for joining us on 98 Not Out. Absolute pleasure, uh, and look forward to catching up um, at some Tabner's Do's over the summer. Indeed, many thanks. That's exactly what we're going to do. 